Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome. CC. Hello and welcome. One, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 21, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. For this week's show, I'm going to be talking about the things that are derailing you on your documentary film project, or maybe even keeping you from living your documentary life. While there may be some applicable crossover from an earlier episode, it was show number eight, I believe, which was about how to finish your documentary film, this is a bit different in that I'm going to explore what's keeping you from working on your film project at all. Regardless of whether you're in the post-production stage, whether you're in the middle of maybe shooting the film, or you're just talking about doing this really interesting film project, but for some very understandable and legitimate reasons, which we're going to get to, haven't yet been able to begin. And again, this could also be applied to leading and living your own documentary life or your creative life. Maybe film isn't even your artistic medium of choice, by the way. I do have some listeners who tune into TDL because they find that, you know, that there are many appropriate lessons from our discussions here about documentary lives that work for them as, you know, painters and musicians in their lives as well. Often when I'm doing these shows, meaning the monthly installment where I'm not having a shared conversation with an industry guest, I'm talking about a given topic by relating my own experiences, my successes, my failures, my triumphs, my lessons. I do this for a couple of reasons. I want to be real with you guys, and part of being real is revealing some of my own personal and professional life. I do this because that's often at the heart of this program having a better understanding of how we're all trying to live our lives in such a way, you know, that allows us to live alongside our dreams and our passions, for most of us, documentary filmmaking. I have guests on the show who will not only talk about their craft or about their films, but also about the way in which they live their own documentary lives, what's worked for them, what is not, how they've been able to, you know, make their films come to life while still being able to maintain, well, life. (laughs) With that being said... I'd like to share a little bit about what's going on in my life over the past few months that will not only be directly affecting my personal life, but my professional life as well. And this this also will lead directly into today's topic of things that are derailing or keeping you from your documentary film and or your documentary life. You'll remember that Steph and I are currently based out of Portland, Oregon, where I've been based for the better part of the last 20 years. Steph is from the UK, and I'm from Rochester, New York on the East Coast. Portland's worked great for me for most of those 20 years. It's got easy access to the ocean in one direction, the mountains in the other. People embrace and love an active lifestyle here that supports things like the arts, exercise, progressive thinking. You can't swing a cat without hitting a yoga studio, an amazing and healthy restaurant, a meditation center, a bicycle shop, a cool cafe, privately owned bookstore, etc., etc. I'm often unintentionally talking pretty highly of Portland on this show, but I don't really need to sell the town to you. 
most of America knows by now, since people have clearly been moving here, buying properties, opening businesses over the past decade in record numbers. There's a good reason that of major cities in the U.S., Portland felt the recession in an entirely different fashion than, say, Buffalo or Rochester, New York, or Pittsburgh, PA, or Minneapolis, Minnesota. And that is not to say that Portland didn't experience it at all. It absolutely did. But I think that the impact was felt on a smaller scale than other places in the U.S. And speaking of the recession, in fact, I was able to buy a house here in 2012, which happened to be just before the real estate market, at least here in Portland, started to rebound. Sadly, there were foreclosures on houses that were walk-in ready throughout the town. In a weird coincidence, it happened to be the time when I started strongly considering you know, buying my first house. The timing was right for me personally and professionally. I had paid off all debts and established good credit over the past few years. I was working steadily and making a decent income. I was ready to move out of my studio apartment and into something maybe a little bit more sizable. And when I looked at the rental market here in Portland, which is somehow even worse today than it was then, I quickly realized that I may as well have been paying on a mortgage for what I was to be paying now for you know what would amount to a one-bedroom apartment. To make this part of the story a bit shorter, I'd end up buying a smaller size two-bedroom house in an up-and-coming neighborhood of Portland. It, it had a large yard with a garage and was ideally located in like, you know, as I said, an up-and-coming neighborhood here in, in, in Portland. I, I got what is now a steal for the house, which gave me a very manageable mortgage. It, it allowed me to continue working in town, but have the ability to leave, you know, for sizable chunks at a time to go and, and work on my documentary projects overseas. Now, again, this was back in 2012, eh? Some things in my life have changed a bit. Well, way more than a bit, maybe. A year after buying the house, I would meet up with a friend named Steph. I'd meet up with her in Cambodia to work on what was, at the time, a short documentary film project idea that I'd recently come up with. Well, let's fast forward to 2017, and that friend named Steph has become my wife, and we now have two kids, one of whom is already three years old, and that short documentary film project idea, well, that would become what has now turned into what will be a feature-length documentary film known as Elvis of Cambodia. That's a lot to happen in even my own documentary life, which, by the way, is kind of where I'm going with all of this, my documentary life and Steph's documentary life. It's been drastically affected by all that has happened in the past three, four years. How could it not? Steph went from being a single, independent British woman who was ADing on some major films in Malaysia and traveling throughout Asia on her time off, to suddenly falling in love with some American dude who convinced her to come get married and live shared documentary lives here based out of Portland, Oregon, USA. And if that weren't enough, then quickly thereafter becoming pregnant with the first of their two children. And yes, it did happen in that order, thank you very much. And this all happening while at the same time, we were trying to work on Elvis of Cambodia, which was quickly becoming something much, much bigger than just this short film idea. Later that year, as many of you know, we'd end up raising some money via a Kickstarter campaign down in Long Beach, California, which happens to be home to the biggest Cambodian-American refugee population in, in the States. And we'd soon be off to Cambodia, where we'd live for the next five months while we filmed the majority of Elvis. And, by the way, our son Flynn was only seven months old at the time. Yes, many people thought us mad for doing such a thing. 
For more on this, you can check out episode number 14 on how to run your Kickstarter campaign. There's a bunch of information there, not only about the Kickstarter campaign and how to successfully run a crowdfunding campaign, but also about what was happening in our lives during that time. We came back to the States in February 2015, and surprise, surprise, the following year had our second child, our daughter Maya. In between bouts of changing diapers, freelance gigs, the Barong Films business, and, well, a whole lot of life, our wonderful documentary film project, which we'd had so much energy and already spent so much time and money on, well, just kind of got put in the corner. I mean, I'd done a bit of editing, even put together the first 12 minutes of the film, but for the most part, it has been left slightly unattended to. It's always there in our minds. We've always been talking about it and hopeful for it. But for the most part, since we last were really shooting on it back in December of 2014, not a whole heck of a lot has been done in the film. Why, you ask? Well, the list of reasons are plenty, and they include some of what I've just mentioned. We started to raise a family. I had to try and work as much as I could since Steph was taking care of a baby. We were scrambling to get Brong Films clients. Steph was sick basically the entirety of her second pregnancy. We naively took on another documentary short, which we'd received a grant to do. We'd run out of money for Elvis, had no remaining budget for it whatsoever. Our own personal finances were, and I'm not ashamed to admit this, they were in a fairly precarious position. Oh yeah, one more thing. Somehow, inexplicably, The Apprentice was elected president of the United States. What? You don't think we can use that as an excuse? (laughs) Okay, maybe not. Well, at least not right now. But give it some time and we may all be using that one as an excuse. Did I just go political there for a minute? Sorry, it wasn't intended. I I hope that I didn't lose too many of my listeners. No, but you get the picture that I'm painting here. And I, I think that so, so many of us have all been here. Life happens, and our art, in this case our documentary films, or in some cases our documentary lives, bear the brunt of this. Welcome to the world, right? Welcome to how most creatives I know exist. But I'm here to tell you that it does not have to be this way, or at least it doesn't have to be permanent. Of course, there will be periods in probably all of our lives where we're not able to give as much to our films as we'd like to, but I'm here to tell you that the pain of this can be minimized. You can get back on track with your film in relatively short order. You can get back to what you love and get back to living and leading your documentary lives. Which is precisely what Steph and I have started doing here in 2017. And I believe you can too. Stick around and towards the end of the show, I'm going to reveal Steph and my plan for our documentary lives and specifically for our beloved Elvis of Cambodia for the rest of the year. There are some massive and really exciting changes underway that I'll share with you, but I'm going to wait and and finish the show with these. So we're going to take a short break, but when we do come back, we'll take a look at four fairly common reasons that people's documentary films, or maybe in some cases their documentary lives, they get derailed, as I keep mentioning. And I'm going to give you some ways to help you get back in the proverbial track with your film. After I premiered my first documentary film, Journey to Kathmandu, a film that took nearly five years to make, I remember feeling elated and exhausted. Is there any other feeling like the first time you show your completed doc film to an audience? I don't think there is. Not long after, I took a well-deserved short break away from the city, and it was while I was on a hike, when I had reached a mountaintop and was overlooking the Great Columbia River, that I found myself thinking back on the film and the journey that I'd been on. I thought about all the mistakes I'd made, all the wins that I'd had, 
how it had felt to finally share my film with an audience, and I thought about the life it would have from here on out. And I began to break down all the components of what had gotten me to where I was at that moment, and all the things I wished I'd done differently. And this is how I began to form what I am sharing with you today, a free course entitled The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist. In the Essential Checklist, I share with you the fundamental aspects of making a documentary film, and perhaps most importantly, help you to avoid making some of the mistakes that I made during my first feature film. It is my sincere hope that The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist will help make your doc film's journey the truly exhilarating experience that it can and should be. It's yours simply by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses and enrolling for free. Okay, so I've put together a list of four fairly common reasons that people's documentary films, or maybe in some cases their documentary lives, get off track and, and, and how to get back on the, on the track with your film. The first one is that you've become too focused, dare I say maybe even obsessed, with one aspect of your project. And that unknowingly has caused yourself to become stuck in this place. Effectively, you've stalemated yourself without really intending to do so. Now, this is pretty common with documentary filmmakers, especially ones that have, say, used up their entire budget getting a film shot. Happens all the time. It's a mistake that you won't generally make a second time, but it's completely understandable when it does happen. So much time and effort and resources you know, goes into just getting the film in the can, if you will. Though no one I know is actually shooting film anymore on their docs, so I guess in the can is a phrase that is a bit out of date, I suppose. Maybe I should say that you spend all this energy and money into just getting the film on a bunch of hard drives. Then when it comes time to go into post-production, you know, put the film together into a cohesive story, you have zero budget to pay an editor let alone for an animator or a sound engineer or a colorist or whatever. And so you become focused on what you don't have as opposed to what you do have. And if this negative focusing leads you down the path of, oh my God, how am I going to finish the film if I don't have any more money and if I don't have any grants coming in, and if I already asked people to give to a crowdfunding campaign six months ago, well, what the hell am I going to do? And then the stacks of tapes or the hard drives end up sitting on shelves or buried in your closet till that one day when you, you know, win the lotto or something. If your focus has led you down this path, well, it could be a very, very long time, if ever, before your film sees the light of day. The not having enough money to start editing your film is not the problem here. It's part of your perceived problem, sure, but it's not the problem. I'd argue that the problem is that you've become so obsessed with what you don't have in this case a budget, that you've neglected to focus your energies on what you do have. A hard drive or stack of cards or tapes of shot footage, in essence, your whole film. The irony is that you, in fact, have your film. It's just about 25 times bigger than it'll eventually be. You just have to take this footage and whittle it down, which you can. You don't have to have an editor. You will be the editor. Yes, maybe preferably you'd wanted to hire this out, but guess what? You now don't have the budget for it. So you will have to do it. And that absolutely does not have to be a terrible thing. In fact, it can benefit you on so many levels. You'll be forced to become acquainted with what you have in your footage. I mean, no one knows better than you what you've shot anyway. So you can most assuredly get to editing something, anything, quicker than someone else whom maybe you've hired on to the project. And here's another bonus. Remember those grants that I was talking about? Well, the sooner you get to editing something, 
the quicker you'll have something to apply for post-production grants with. Most of these types of grants will want to see a work in progress anyway, maybe, you know, many times 15 minutes of the film. So the quicker you can get to this, the better chance you'll have of securing some more funding for the film. And you may not end up having to edit the entire film after all. You get my point here. Instead of focusing on one aspect of the film, in this case a pretty negative one, by shifting to another aspect or focusing on something more positive, you've created the space that allows you to keep moving forward on your project. Other examples, you might be waiting on the perfect score. You might be trying to get the, 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 the perfect camera. Whatever the case is, you've got to realize that your focus and your maybe obsession could be keeping you from moving forward with the film. Now, the second reason that keeps people from seeing their film projects through deals with the issue of perfection. Again, you'll forgive me that this may seem particular to post-production or the editing of the film because, well, in this case, I guess it definitely can. But, but I've seen this happen to filmmakers time and again, yours truly included, so it's definitely an issue that is common to a lot of us. A very talented colleague of mine, who shall remain nameless, has been working on our documentary film for the past few years. In fact, she hired me to do some shooting on it just a couple of years back. At the time, the filming was all but complete. The director just wanted to get a few more shoot days in. The subject matter is fascinating. And the main subject herself, who the story is really all about, she's an absolutely perfect person for the camera. The camera loves her, and people are going to love her story. I believe that she will literally sell the film herself, and that the director would be hard-pressed to screw it up. I'm serious when I say that documentary filmmakers would die to have this subject drive their films. And I don't say this to pressure the director. As I mentioned, she is skilled in her own right, and she knows how to tell a story. Recently, I was engaged in conversation with the subject of the film, and she told me that the director was still shooting on it. Now, without giving anything away about the film, I have to say that I was absolutely shocked to hear this. To hear that the director was not only at least nearly finished editing the film, but that she was in fact still shooting on it. When I'd been asked to do some shooting on the film, they were basically set to go into full-scale post-production, that they had their story. And this made sense, because if you knew the story at that point, which had already been being filmed for two years, there was a very natural end to it. But here we are two years after that, and while sure more has happened in the subject's life, undoubtedly, there have now been probably three more potential endings for this film. And yet the director is still filming the subject. Now, in full disclosure, I have absolutely zero idea what the filmmaker is doing with the story. And who knows, maybe when the film does come out, maybe it'll all make sense. But I want to use this as an example because I think that we as filmmakers can make the mistake of going beyond the story, always thinking that there's more of the story just around the corner. And the truth is, sure, there always is. Until maybe the main subject dies of old age or whatever. Theoretically, we could film someone's whole life if we wanted, right? But then we probably only have one film to our own lives, and I'm not sure any of us wants this. I think that I can safely say that most of us aspire to, be, you know, to make more than one film. Now, I'd be willing to bet that the director has long had the story, and that when she or her team sits down to edit the film, they're probably going to find that the majority of what they've filmed over the past two years will barely be a part of that story. Because I suspect it's not the core of the story, that they in fact shot the story nearly two years ago, and since that time have gotten caught up with going to focus groups, meeting with other filmmakers, hearing about something that they find new and fascinating about their subject, and then sending a shooter out you know, to cover it, only to not realize 
or hopefully someday they will realize, that they've just become so obsessed with their subject, whom they've now been filming for nearly four years, that they can no longer see the forest for the trees. So sometimes you've got to reel yourself in, or maybe one of your colleagues can do that for you, because it's easy, right? It, because it's easy to become obsessed with our stories, our, our subjects. It's part of our makeup as documentary filmmakers. We love our subjects and we love their stories, but you've got to remember that at the end of the day, unless you're planning on doing a 10-part Netflix series, there's really probably only one story to tell. So stop trying to tell 30 other ones. The third item that I think is going to help significantly increase your chances of getting back on track once you've derailed, or perhaps will help you keep from becoming derailed in the first place, is the same approach you might take to achieve a particular goal. If you make a goal too open-ended, it becomes easy to make excuses or to put it off. Take New Year's resolutions, for example. People love to make lists of resolutions, often including things like, well, losing weight is a pretty popular one, right? If you've ever had a gym membership, you'll know that the first week of January is probably the, the most packed of the entire year. It's all the people who've made New Year's resolutions, right? To get in better shape or to lose weight or, or what have you. Then watch what happens somewhere on the third week of January. The numbers have just as quickly dwindled as people start losing the drive and interest in their New Year's resolution. Who knows the many reasons that people come up with not to see a goal through. But I think about the guy who has resolved to lose 20 pounds in the new year. Well, that is such an open-ended goal. It leaves too much room for putting it off. Giving yourself a year to do anything like that, it just makes it too easy to not have to feel any of the urgency, right? So by the time November comes around, that guy who wanted to lose 20 pounds in the year not only hasn't even started, he's maybe on the cusp of gaining a few more as the holidays are just around the corner. Now, what could he have done better? Well, he could have given himself more specific targets and deadlines, right? If he had maybe vowed to lose four of the 20 pounds by, say, the end of February, he'd only have 10 more months to lose 16 more pounds by the end of the year, or less than two pounds a month from there on out. And his goal would probably really happen in about half that time, right? Maybe even less, if he'd continued his habits that he'd been developing those first two months of the year. Now, how does this apply to the film world? You can probably already guess. Break the film in its many phases and its many, many different tasks down into more achievable goals. Don't just start a film project stating that you want to have a finished film by the year, you know, 2019. For one, if we're going by today's date, you think you've given yourself plenty of time, two years, right? First off, that's actually not a lot of time to make a film from start to finish, but that's something else entirely. But for this example, two years seems very achievable and may in fact feel like a long time out. But it's the same thing as the guy who vows to lose 20 pounds in a year. Because it seems so far out, the next thing you know, 10 months has passed before the guy even starts to really think about losing weight again. With your film, you should make a calendar that breaks down the phases of the film. Include pre-production, production, and post-production, of course. But obviously, these, you know, these in itself are way too broad of goals. So you'll want to break your production down into smaller chunks. You'll want to make, for example, a shooting schedule. This will give you more concrete and specific goals to be shooting for pun very much intended. When you go into the post-production phase, build yourself a similar schedule that includes target dates for things like, you know, a paper cut, uh, a rough cut, you know, the, the rough cut screening, a fine cut, graphics, animation, and so on and so forth, you know, up through the, the deliverables. 
Again, it's important when you're making a film that you give yourself some goals that are achievables within a very specific time frame. And don't make these goals so far out that it's easy to procrastinate them. Now, the last thing that I'll mention about goals is the importance of writing them down on paper. Saying them aloud is so easy to do, right? But it's not enough to just tell your friends or yourself about your goals or that you're going to have a rough cut of your film done by such and such a time. It's actually been proven out that the success rate of achieving one's goals, it's magnified greatly when you've written your goals down. In fact, a Dr. Gail Matthews from Dominican University in California did a study on this very thing, and she concluded that there was a 42% higher success rate on goals when they were written down than when they were just in someone's brain. So there's clearly something about the physical transformation of your thoughts to your pencil and then to a piece of paper. The fourth and final item that can directly affect your ability to see a film project through is bum 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 life. Remember what I mentioned earlier? Shit or mierda or mad happens. Shit happens. Yep, I, I know it seems maybe a bit simple, trivial even, but it's very real. And I'm not talking about the anxieties or stresses that typically come along with any artistic endeavor worth one's salt. I'm talking about real life shit, like paying the monthly bills on time, having a baby, children period for that matter. I'm talking about divorce. I'm talking about health issues. A whole host of what I'm calling life issues can and often do affect our ability to put forth proper time and energy into our documentary projects or our documentary lives. Life often takes precedence over our passion projects. It just does. Hell, life often takes precedence over our professional lives. The trick is accepting this, not fighting it, but also not completely giving into it. Knowing that once you dealt with or gone through whatever it is that you're going through, you're going to pick that documentary life back up, dust it off, and continue on living that life. Yes, I know, not exactly a solid solution for this particular problem, but that's why I've saved my payoff moment for last. Because it goes right along with this fourth and final item that can disrupt your documentary film or your documentary life. So now, for the moment you've all been eagerly waiting for, or maybe not, maybe all you really wanted to hear was the four, maybe really three ways that could help you get refocused on your documentary film. I don't blame you, I'm cool with that too. So, as a bonus, I'm going to tell you what Steph and I and our little family are doing so that we may get back on track with our own documentary lives, and more specifically with our passion project, the feature documentary film Elvis of Cambodia, which we started in 2013 and last really worked on in, say, January of 2015. You remember earlier in the show, I talked about purchasing my first house, which would not too long thereafter become home for my wife and our two little ones. I also mentioned how being based out of Portland, Oregon, which basically put us on the opposite side of the country from nearly all of my family, not to mention all of Steph's family who were across the pond in the UK. Well, about halfway into last year, we decided that, you know, other than my freelance work, it just wasn't making much sense being so far removed from both of our families. We wanted our kids to start forming relationships with their extended families or forbid that Steph and I, you know, actually wanted to have more than one date a year. We could get some help from grandma and grandpa. Not to mention, we're looking to get Steph back some of her life. You'll remember that she left her independent life of working on films in England and in Asia when she agreed to come to the U.S. with me. And then, of course, she took care of the kids while I worked in the industry. That's four years ago now. 
We have some daycare, of course, and we're looking to get closer to family. But we're also both looking to get back to what we loved about our lives, maybe before the kids, and finding ways to live closer to our ideals. Of course, in a responsible manner, yes, having the kids and whatnot. But we want to get back to our own versions of our documentary lives. And many of you can probably appreciate this. That life simply does not look like the traditional lives that many people we all know are leading. Steph and I were not built to lead the 9-to-5 work and family lives that, say, our parents were. It's not for us. It was for them, and we have all of the respect and gratitude in the world for that. I would not be who I am if not for the sacrifices that my parents made. But they also made those sacrifices so that I might be set up to have the best life possible. And for Steph and I, we believe that the best life possible for both us and the kids is not to live like our parents did but instead to take the freedom afforded us by our upbringing, by our hard and diligent work that we've put in throughout our lives, and by the freedom afforded us by selling our house, which I bought low and am now selling high, by the freeing thoughts that we make of our lives what we want to make of them. So yes, we're selling the house this month, and we're selling high as the real estate market in Portland is pretty good, and we're using the profit to propel us to the next chapter in our lives, our documentary lives, if you will. Which leads me to Elvis of Cambodia. Right now, the plan is to go live for a few months in the UK. We're looking to establish Barong Films as a business in both the UK and the US. And of course, the other exciting thing for Steph and I is that we will finally be able to really start focusing on getting back to work on Elvis. Putting a rough cut assembly together, working on grant applications, figuring out plans to return to Cambodia to finish out some filming. During this time, I'm also looking to really up the game with this podcast. See episode number 16 for my future plans with the podcast. In August, we'll be coming back to the States for a month. I'm going to be attending Podcast Movement 2017 in Anaheim, which I'm excited to share with you over the course of the next few months. I'd imagine also spending a little bit of time in Long Beach since we'll be so close and maybe doing a little bit of filming there on the dock. We'll also be spending some time with family down in Santa Fe, New Mexico during that time. And then after that, well, we're looking to take the family back to, wait for it, Cambodia. This is where we'll make our final push to finish the film. Probably take another six months, do the remainder of shooting, and finish up a rough cut, if not a fine cut edit, on the film. And we'll be putting both Flynn and Maya into international preschool while there. And Steph and I will be basically making our documentary lives sing. And something else that I'll I'll just mention briefly here, and over the next few months we'll expand more upon, is that I'm putting together a How to Make Documentary Films Overseas workshop. I talked about this in, in my end of the year podcast as well. It's something that I've been wanting to do for quite some time. And well, since we'll be in Cambodia, it seems like the perfect place and time to launch it. So start thinking about that. If you've ever thought about filming in a developing country, as you know from this program, it's where I've spent a big chunk of my documentary life, you know, shooting in countries like Cambodia, Nepal, El Salvador, Haiti, to name you know a few. If you're considering shooting your own project overseas, or you'd just like to spend some time in a Southeast Asian country with some other documentary filmmakers, this workshop might be a great fit for you. So stay tuned to the show and the Documentary Life website over the next few months as more details begin to emerge. Like I said, it's something that I've always wanted to do, host a workshop for documentary filmmakers in a place like Cambodia, and I'd love to have you be a part of it. 
Now, I will say that at this moment in time, that is our rough plan for the next six months. But that, of course, could shift a bit. That could change. As an old production friend of mine used to always say, written in stone, subject to change. I always love that one. But we do want to remain open to possibilities and responsibilities. We like the flexibility of our lives and would like to keep it that way. For example, it might make sense for us to, you know, to wait until later in the year when the monsoon season is entirely over before going to Cambodia. There's a lot that can happen from now till then. But as you know, it's at least good to have some idea of what you'd like to accomplish. It's important to have even a rough template. So thank you for allowing me to share that with you. Now, before I finish up here, I do feel that it's important to mention that I'm not suggesting that you sell your house and and you go across the world and, and live your dreams. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. What Steph and I are doing is not for everyone. It's not for most people. There are some risks that we're taking, but they are calculated risks. Steph and I are a different breed. We see life differently. We act in life differently than a lot of people that we know. But we absolutely believe that we're going to be successful. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing any of this. This is what makes us happy and excited about our lives. And we're creating an environment where our children can believe that dreams can be a reality. Yes, of course, we'll be smart and conscious and responsible for our children. But we're also going to live our lives in the way that we choose to live. And we're not going to compromise our dreams or our happiness along the way in any way. Well, that's this edition of The Documentary Life. I do hope that you enjoyed it. When next we get together, I'll have a documentary industry guest on board. If you haven't already or you're new to the show, be sure to go back and check out prior episodes. All 21 episodes can be found by going to www.thedocumentarylife.com. And don't forget, while there, sign up for the newsletter and you'll be given a code for a free download of my first documentary film, Journey to Kathmandu. Thanks everyone for continuing to support this ever-growing documentary community of ours. And thanks for listening to The Documentary Life. Until next time, I remain your host, Chris G. Parkhurst. See you soon. Don't forget, if you're interested in a guide to help you navigate the fundamental aspects of doc filmmaking, the things that every doc filmmaker should know, then get our free doc filmmaking course, The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, by going to thedocumentarylife.com courses. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.